This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3 it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And the rest of the chapter goes into the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the things that he experienced suffering on our behalf. Now what stood out to me in this verse as I, as I read this and, and really began to think about this, the fact that the Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows. And it's quite sad of a description of our Lord and Savior. He is a man of sorrows and he is acquainted with grief. That means he is very familiar with grief. And I got me to thinking about that. And, and how is it that Christ could be acquainted with grief? Well, automatically we think about the suffering of the cross and the great pain he endured, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But I think that the suffering and the grief that Christ experienced began long before the events of the cross. And they are as much connected to, that, to the events of the cross, but it, it began long before. And so Christ was in suffering before he came uh, into this world. And I think for us to understand that and establish that, there are some things that we need to, to, to put down as foundational principles first. So the starting point we're starting with is, who is Christ? When we think about this, if he's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief and he came into this world, why does the scriptures give us such descriptions of Christ and who he is and, and what he's done? Well, Paul, when he wrote to the Colossians about Christ and about the king that we serve, our glorious king, he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Speaking of Christ, he says, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist." Notice the description that we receive of Christ in the Scriptures. I think it's important for us to try as much as we can, although it's hard to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is the creator of all things. He is the source of all things, the source of all life. And, and there was, in fact, John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Anything that God has created, it was Christ who created these things. And without Christ, there was nothing it's, po it's not possible for anything to have been made without Christ. He is God, and He is the Creator. And if that's the case, when we read of, of God describing His power and His ability and the things that He did, the events of creation, uh, that's Jesus Christ speaking, such as in Isaiah 45, verse 12. God says, I have made the earth and created man upon it. Even I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. So Jesus Christ is responsible for creating the heavens, and notice he's responsible for creating man upon this earth. And so we go back to further even to Genesis, the account of creation, all those creative acts that God, that God spoke, and there was light, and then he created the, the dry land, and then he separated the dry land from the waters, and then he created the plant life, and then he created the animals, and then he created the stars, and the sun, and the moon. All those things were things that Jesus Christ was responsible for. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the pinnacle of his creation. Genesis chapter 1, 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
These are important facts that we have to start with and an understanding we have to start with to understand the sufferings that God has experienced long before the cross began. Because he created hum humanity, he created us to be in his likeness, and I, and I believe that uh, we do have, we were created to be eternal beings with a, an immortal soul, and we were created to be in holiness, and there was harmony, and there was peace between man and God. And this is what God wants. This is the God of life who created uh, life and wants us to experience that. Yet his suffering begins because of man. You see, this harmony that God created with humanity was broken because of a choice that humans made to disobey God. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of this, we read of the action. Of course, leading up to this, Satan deceives uh, the woman and she eats of the tree. And it says here, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and, he, and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed, fit, uh, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So here we have a description of the first act of sin committed. They broke the commandments of God. He told them not to eat of this tree and Satan convinced them that it was good for them to eat of the tree, and so they did. They took part of this tree that God had forbidden them to eat from, and they broke the harmony between man and God. And God separated himself from them and drove them from the garden because sin causes separation. Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, Your iniquities, that means your sins, our wrongdoings, our iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It's not that God is, was incapable of hearing them or incapable of helping them and reaching them. It's that sin creates a barrier between man and God and a separation, and this is displeasing to God. And so his grief, his grief began in the garden when mankind committed sin, and he was very pained by that. And I think it's a pain that we will never understand and that we will never know. And it, it wasn't just he was sad about us not making the right choice. He was brokenhearted by this. In fact, sin began to grow so much in the world that by the time we get to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, it says, God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mankind, created to represent God, created to be in his holiness, to have harmony, now has turned so wicked that every thought was only evil continually. The complete antithesis of what God had created and who God is. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. God was very brokenhearted by this outcome of sin and this separation from sin because of sin. He doesn't want to be separated. He created us to be in harmony with him and to have a relationship with him and to have fellowship with him. He didn't create us to be separated from him. He created us to be with him. And he is, he is grieved at his heart because of the separation of sin. And so... The man of sorrows, the suffering begins when mankind disobeys him and separates because of sin. And ultimately, that separation will be everlasting, and God is not happy about that. There's a lot of people that want to paint God as this vengeful God who just goes around killing people and is, is, takes joy at people suffering, and that is absolutely <coughs> false. And God himself says this, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's what God is pleased with. God is happy when somebody changes their mind, changes their life, changes their actions, and comes to him, and, and instead chooses a pathway of life. That's what God loves. He does not love. He has no pleasure, he says, in the death of the wicked. And he pleads with the children of Israel here at this point because so long they had committed adultery and idolatry and they were turning away from God and serving other idols and, uh, and, and or not other idols, but serving idols and, and all these false gods from these other nations and, and had betrayed God and turned away from him. And he pleads with them, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? He pleads with them, why? Why will you die? Choose life instead he says, because he has no pleasure in this separation. And this was such a grief and such a sorrow that God experienced with this, that he knew what he would do about this. And the way he was going to fix this, this suffering because of the sin and the separation of man, he came into this world to suffer as a man. So the man of sorrows, he, he becomes a man, God. This one acquainted with grief becomes a man. God himself, the eternal creator that we read about, that created all things, humbles himself and lowers himself to such a state to suffer just like us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, it says, speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God, think about that, he exists in the form of God, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ didn't hang on to and didn't think, not only was it, was it right for him to be equal with God because he is God, he didn't hang on to that, but he emptied himself. Verse 7, he made himself of no reputation means he emptied himself of that, of that status, of that glory, so that he could lower himself to the form of a servant and he was made in the likeness of men. So God himself becomes flesh. He didn't come into this world as a great king, as some great warrior, as some wealthy uh, monarch or some powerful, influential man. He came as just a poor, lowly, meek servant. He made himself of no reputation. And he was born. And, and, and he, didn't, he, he didn't just appear and all of a sudden here he was in the form of a man. He, start, he went through the entire process that we go through as human beings. He, he, from conception uh, and birth and growing up and, and even to his death. He went through all of the process and he was born into the world just like us. And it wasn't even a luxurious birth. We read of the accounts and we know and are familiar with it. There was no room for them at the end. There was a census and they were, his family had to go back to uh, Bethlehem for the census. And there was no room for them at the end. And so they just had to... She, she had to give birth wherever they could find. And they ended up in a barn, it sounds like, or somewhere where there was animals, and, and Jesus was laid in this, in this trough where they feed animals, a manger. It wasn't even a great reception for this great and mighty king. And not only was his birth uh, troublesome in that sense, he was born into woes. He was born into sorrows. He was born into grief. Because in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Jesus was born with a, with a mark of death upon him. And Herod the king wanted to find him to kill him. 
because he knew that this child was the true king of the Jews. And so he goes and he kills uh, because he can't find the, the, the Christ, the one that these wise men had gone to go and see, that he sent to find the location of, and they wouldn't give up the location. So he goes to Bethlehem after two years, and, and he gets all the children that are two years old and under and just massacres them and kills them. So Jesus Christ was born into woes and born into this kind of suffering. People were hunting him down. And he grows up a, a regular person, it, it appears. We don't really have much details about from, from, his, uh, from, his, from his birth. We have an account of his adolescence, and then we have uh, into his ministry in his adulthood. But he experienced everything that you and I experience as human beings and knows exactly what we go through, knows exactly all the pain, knows exactly all the suffering, all the joys, all the good times and the bad times. He knows. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That means he understands. He understands intimately what we're going through. He knows the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses, our faults. He knows the feelings of these things. And he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. When we're out and about and we're tempted to, to take that drink, we're tempted to look in that direction or find those things online that we ought not to be looking at, when we're tempted to go those places that we ought not to go to, when we're tempted to covet and, have, and, and want and desire you know, money and wealth and possessions and all these things, Jesus knows exactly what that temptation feels like. Yet he was perfect and did not commit sin. But understand that Jesus knows exactly what it means to be human. And he experienced that. And it's sorrow enough. You know the grief because of your sins. We know it keenly. And Jesus understands what we're going through because he experienced the same temptations. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, tells us that Jesus also experienced death. From birth to death, Jesus lived and suffered in this world with us, like us, as a man. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. His entire purpose for being born into this world and coming to suffer in this world as a man was so that he would die. Just like humanity was, it was subject to because of sin. And so the beginning of his sufferings because of the sin and separation, that is the story of the cross. And that is the reason that he is a man of sorrows. That is the reason that he is acquainted with grief. Because that grief compelled him to become a man and to suffer like us. And it not only compelled him to suffer like us and become a human being like us, it caused him to die a specific type of death so that he would suffer in place of man. He suffers because of man, he suffers as a man, and he suffers in place of man. Now we're guilty because of the sin that we commit and because of the sins that humanity and the separation that humanity has caused. We are guilty, but Jesus takes that entire punishment upon himself and, and somehow bears this wrath of God against sin in his own body and experience such a cruel such a cruel death that it's difficult to talk about but we're going to talk about it and we're going to get descriptive <clears throat> about the pain and the suffering that Christ endured 
in our place. Pick up at the garden. Jesus is there with his disciples, knowing what's about to come. In Matthew 26, verse 37, it says, He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Do you feel the heaviness and the sorrow that Jesus experiences as we read about him? Being sorrowful even to the point of, of dying. And looking forward, knowing what was coming. That he was about to endure such grief and such pain and such agony. And the amount of stress that he would have had is und- it's indescribable. In Luke 22, verse 44, as he prays, it says, He being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And he pleaded and he begged God for there to be some other way. But he knew it was not possible. And it says his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is a documented medical condition called uh, hematidrosis. I, I don't know if I'm saying that exactly correctly. But I think there's something like three or four cases uh, known. It's extremely rare. But that, uh, what is known about it is that when somebody is so stressed, has such stress in their life, it is, it is extreme, extremely painful, and, and the blood vessels in your forehead break, and it comes out through your sweat glands. And it's only under the most extreme types of stress. And Jesus was experiencing that. That tells us what Jesus was experiencing and how he was feeling. His sweat were, as it was, great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was extremely uh, agonized over what was to come. Sometimes we just read over these scriptures and kind of glaze over them and move on and think, well, yeah, he was sad and he died. He wasn't just so sad. He was extremely agonized over what was to come. And he was in sorrow. And it was pain and torture, emotional pain that he was experiencing. And if it's not bad enough for him to be experiencing, (laughs) if it's not bad enough for the emotional pain that he's already bearing, he's betrayed by his his own people. And forthwith, Judas came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said, Friend, why art thou come? And then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Imagine this. Spending three years training and teaching someone, and you become close to them, and they're with you through all of these events, and see all the miracles that you've done, see all the great works, and he betrays you. He sells you for 30 pieces of silver, and he comes and kisses him and feigns to be his friend. Master. And Jesus calls him friend still. And as if that's not bad enough, 
Judas wasn't the only one that betrayed Christ. In fact, when they came and arrested him, it says in verse 56, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And now Jesus is left to walk this excruciating journey to his death all alone, forsaken by all. He's taken then to the palace of the high priest, and they're, they're, they question him. The Jewish Sanhedrin begins to, to question him and, and figure out a way to put him to death by his own words and try to trap him because he claimed that he was God rightfully, and they hated him and wanted to kill him. And as they put him on trial, it says the men that held Jesus mocked him and they smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that hit you? Who is it that smote thee? What awful treatment for their own king. This is how his own people treated him, mocking him and beating him. Yet the Jews know that they can't do anything. He's an innocent man. They know they're trapped. There's nothing they can do. And so they devise a false witness against him, saying that because he his claims to be a king, they use that against him to take him to the Roman government and have the Romans carry out this execution because the Jews were not uh, capable of doing that. So they use the, the Romans to carry out their plot of murder against this innocent man. And so they take him to Pilate, and he's put on trial by the Romans, and of course, Pilate asks him questions and speaks to him and sees that there's nothing he's done. He's an innocent man. And he tries to release him, but he's afraid of the people and they cry out, crucify him. And he tries and he attempts to release Jesus to him, to the people, as was their custom on those Passovers. And he brings out a murderer and a robber, Barabbas, and Christ. And he asks who do you want me to release? And the people choose the murderer. They don't choose the innocent man who's come to save them from their sins. And he releases Barabbas to them, it says in Matthew 27. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now that process of scourging, it wasn't just a whip, and he got a few lashes. That process of scourging was brutal and horrible. And Jesus now has to be here subject to a group of Roman soldiers who can give as many lashes as they want. It just depends on their mood. It depends on how tired they get of, of whipping this man with, with a particular tool that they use for this scourging. The tool they use is called the flagrum. It was a short-handled, it was a short-handled whip with leather strands, leather strips. They, I think, sometimes also referred to it as a cat of nine tails. And what these Roman soldiers would do, they would customize these whips with sharp pieces of bone or metal balls that they would weave into those strands. So this wasn't just some simple lashing that he received, even as brutal as a, a, a normal lashing would be. This was far beyond. This was, this was made to torture someone 
And these tools were designed to remove flesh as quickly as possible. And so Jesus has to endure this, and it intensifies so much. You know, oftentimes in these, in these scourgings, the victims might die sometimes because of all the blood loss. And they begin this process of crucifixion with this to weaken them with shock and that blood loss. Otherwise, if they just nail a, a man to the cross, uh, he might live for several days. And so they need to expedite his death, and they begin with this cruel punishment. Christ would have received repeated blows to his chest, his back, his buttocks, his legs, completely covered in these lashes flesh torn. I found descriptions and read of, of people who would have described the kind of, of scene. And it says, initial blows would have opened the skin and the underlying tissue. Following blows would have tattered the underlying muscles, producing quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. One quote says, during the scourging, it would be commonplace for the lacerated skin and bloodied underlying muscle tissue to take on the appearance of shredded meat. Was it a pretty sight? And so he's scourged. They take him off to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And then when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. He claimed to be a king, and so they gave him the garments of a king. A crown and a robe and a reed. Now imagine your body being ripped open, and you're bleeding profusely. And, and you know, sometimes if we get a cut, we try to be very, we, we deal with that very tenderly and carefully. We try not to get clothes to touch that or anything to rub on that because how much it would hurt. But imagine your whole body being cut apart in such a cruel fashion. And they put this robe on him. That wouldn't have felt good. And they sit here mocking, even still. I don't understand how these Roman soldiers could be so brutal and cruel and still have the stomach to mock this man, who they knew was innocent. It would be bad enough for somebody who was guilty to go through something like this. But especially for an innocent man. And they bow the knee before him in mocking and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. And they took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him. That wouldn't have been just this nice, gentle process. That blood would have been soaked into that robe and it would have stung and, and just been excruciatingly painful. And they put his own raiment on him and they lead him away to crucify him. So Pilate takes him back out to the crowd and shows him, shows them, and he says, Behold the man. 
But that, they weren't satisfied with that. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Can you imagine already having gone through this unbearable amount of pain, coming out to your own people that you've come to save, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they see you in this agony and say, nah, we have no king but Caesar. That's not our king. And then they delivered him, therefore, to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Golgotha. And when they crucified him and two other with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the midst. So after these scourgings, these criminals were, criminals rather, were forced to carry the crossbeam, uh, the uh, patibulum, I believe it's, it's called, to the crucifixion site. But Jesus would have been so weakened by this point and dehydrated, he wasn't able to carry that. And so the scripture tells us that, that Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry it for him. He was incapable of doing that at this point. He would have had considerable blood loss, been very weak. And then they nail him to the cross. In that process, they either would have, they, either way, they would have thrown him to the ground, wounds open and all, and, and his, his wounds are scraping against this coarse wooden cross as he's just getting prepared to be nailed to this cross. And then they, they drive the nails into his hands and his feet. Now the pain, I, uh, a doctor describes this pain and he says, you know uh, the, the funny bone? nerve when you hit your funny bone how bad that hurts and you can feel that pain shooting up your arm and sometimes in your shoulder if it's bad enough he said that's a different nerve called the ulna nerve he says imagine taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve and that's what Jesus would have been feeling in his arms and his legs as, he's, as those nails go through his, his body This process of crucifixion was a, a design of torture and torment. This was designed to, to be a slow, painful, drawn-out death. And once they nail him to the cross and hoist him up for all to see, it just, it was just a slow, suffocating death. And they nail him in such a way where their body sags and their arms stretched out, makes it very difficult to breathe. And so for each breath and each time we read of Jesus speaking when he's on the cross, imagine having to pull yourself up from these nails and push yourself up from these nails just to get breath. And then every time dropping back down, how, how horrible the pain every time you need to breathe because this was a device of torture and torment there was no word to describe there's no word to describe the pain that Christ endured on that cross and in fact there was no word to describe the pain that anyone that was ever crucified and so they they created a new word excruciating 
ex, the excruciating, the Latin root meaning ex, meaning out of, and, and cruce, meaning the cross. This is a pain. That word describes, the, that's the only adequate word because it describes the pain that comes from crucifying. And this is what Christ endured. Truly, he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. A grief and a pain of being separated from his children because of sin that we will never understand. A pain and a suffering of, a, of the great God and creator of the world having such humility to, to leave that form and that status to become and suffer as a man. And then to top it all off, to go through such extre- extreme agonizing pain, suffering in place of man for their sins. And we think of, I think the only adequate question when we think about all of these sufferings and all of this pain is why? And we know the answer. We know why Jesus had to suffer. We know why Jesus suffered because of the sins of man. We know why he suffered as a man. We know why he suffered in place of man. The scriptures continue. And as horrible and as sad and as terrible as it is in Isaiah 53, and the story of the cross is so brutal and heavy and sorrowful, it's actually a story of victory. It's actually a story of triumph. It's actually a story of joy. And it's hard for us to imagine, but Isaiah 53 As you continue reading in Isaiah 53, it said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is actually a story of triumph. And the triumph is that God himself came into this world to bear our sins and our iniquities. Jesus had to do this. He had to suffer and had to die. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that this suffering was worth it because of the joy that was set before him. It is a story of triumph. It is a story of victory. It is a story of of joy, because God did the work to bring humanity back to himself. That was the joy that was set before him, the fact that he knew that he could reconcile mankind by going through this type of pain and this suffering and conquering death for us. He says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Jesus died with purpose, and God knew what he was doing when he was going to endure this great suffering of the cross because there was joy set before him. He knew the outcome that was possible and that would happen if he, if he were to do this. And that outcome was that he would conquer death and save us from death. Because God is capable of saving souls from death. He saved Christ from death, and he knew that he would enable that process to be uh, accessible to all of us. 
anyone who obeys him now can have salvation. And, and, and God is the author of that eternal salvation, and he grants that. Jesus died to bring us back to God. The sin that, that mankind started in the garden separated us from God. But in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just in place of the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. God knew that this was a temporary pain in the grand scheme of things that would ultimately help us to be brought back to him. And that is the goal. That is the reason that Jesus died and suffered such a cruel torture on our behalf. Hebrews, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it makes the story connected from the beginning to end and brings it full circle. For since by man came death, mankind disobeyed God and they brought sin and death into the world and they caused us all to be enslaved to, this, to death, something that God never wanted in the first place. By man, Jesus Christ, God, coming in the flesh, just as we read, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. He reverses this curse and he brings us hope once again and he brings us life. For as in Adam all die, if we follow disobedience, we will die. But even so in Christ, if we follow obedience, we shall be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ came first, he's the first fruits, and he was the first to die and be raised up to eternal life. And afterwards, they that are his at his coming. So when Christ returns, those that are in Christ will also experience this great joy of conquering death. And yes, we might go through suffering. Yes, we might endure uh, death and might have to go through that temporary suffering in order to be united once again with Christ and raised up and receive the gift of life. And he says, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. You see, he's coming to gather us all back together and remove sin from the equation and take us back to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and power and authority, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. This story of the man of sorrows, as horrible as it is to think about and to describe the suffering and the grief that our God endured, we need to know the reason why, and that is to save us. He was do willing to do whatever it took to remove sin and to bring us to Him. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.